All right. Well, welcome back to the Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. This is session five. I'm Joel Sedeckes. And if this is the first video of the series that you're watching, let me just give you a quick recap. You may very well want to go back and watch the previous sessions, but this is session five of six. And what we're doing is we're walking our way through the Gospels. And so far we've been in Matthew and Mark, and we're looking at selected passages where Jesus interacts with his ideological opponents, namely the Pharisees, the scribes. Today we're going to see him interact with a new group. We've also seen him interact with and handle a question from a group of believers, namely his disciples or his apostles. Um, And we saw last week how Jesus differentiated his approach when he's speaking to believers versus non-believers and how he uses the same approach, just differentiated. So it's pretty cool what Jesus does. But uh, today we're looking at a, um, a new encounter that Jesus had, and we're going to analyze it and figure out, here's our goal. We want to build our apologetic from the ground up, as it were, or from the Bible up. So we want to we want to see how did Jesus do it, and then we want to analyze his approach and see what principles and what methodology we can glean and, and really pull up and extract out of the text, out of the, the encounter from um, uh, that, that Christ had. And we want to um, by doing this, we want to sharpen our own apologetic or even build our own apologetic, our own defense of the truth of the Christian message, so that when we encounter opponents, uh, discussion partners, friends, non-believers, skeptics, or even believers who have an objection similar to the objection that Jesus faced or who belong to a group or an ideology or a philosophy that's similar to the the ideology that Jesus is confronting, well, we'll be able to refute those ideas like Jesus. So that is our goal. That's why we're doing this. If you don't know who I am, my name is Joel Sedeckes, and I started an organization called the Think Institute. We're founded on the belief that no Christian should ever get caught flat-footed when asked what or why we believe. So what we do is we work hard to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. We're a teaching ministry, and we currently have resources for children, for students, high school students. We're actually really developing something there, uh, some curriculum there. And then we've got, for adults, we've got this course, um, another course that's more of a Bible study. We've got um, podcasts, blogs, tons of resources, and you can learn more about all of that. You can also learn about partnering with us financially and prayerfully by going to thethink.institute. All right, now, enough jibber-jabber. Let's get into it. Today's encounter. This is a true story. This really happened. I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about Scripture. This is a true story. It actually happened, but it is a story. It is a narrative. It's been written by an author, both a human author, but a divine author as well, the Lord, God, who inspires scripture, breathes it out, breathes it out. And it's been written for a purpose. It's been written to teach us. So it's a true story, but it's also an instructional story. Uh, It's there for our edification. It's there to teach us and it's there to bring us closer to the Lord. And I think that's, that's what it's going to do. So this is the afterlife 
wife. And we're looking at Matthew 22, 23 through 33. And uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, I believe, hmm, I forget which version I used, um, but I will have the text up on the screen. I think I'm using the Lexham. Yeah, I'm using the the Lexham English Bible, which is a very, very literal Bible. Okay. The afterlife wife. First of all, a little introduction into the passage. First of all, it is Tuesday of Holy Week. So we are now nearing the end of Jesus's earthly life and ministry, and we're just a few short days away from his impending crucifixion, burial, and, spoiler alert, resurrection. So it's Tuesday. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday, depending on how you count the the days. It's possible it was earlier in the week, but right now it's Tuesday. So what has just happened? Jesus has entered Jerusalem, Maybe at your church you celebrate Palm Sunday. That's that's also known as the triumphal entry. Jesus has entered Jerusalem like a boss, like a king, riding on a uh, a donkey, and everybody was waving palm branches. So he comes in like a champion. He goes into the temple. Now this probably wasn't immediate. It's probably the next day, but he goes into the temple and cleans house. He is flipping tables. He's He's got a cord, uh, a whip rather, that he wound together. He made his own whip. That's pretty, that's, I mean, that's amazing, right? Like Jesus doesn't even just go and, you know, buy a, a horse whip or something. He's like, no, this is so important. Hold on, hold on. Wait right there. You money changer, wait right there. This is so important. I'm literally making my own whip right now to deal with you. Stay right there, please. And, uh, and then he goes into the temple and cleans house. He's got his whip. He's flipping tables. And he is upsetting the financial interests of the people who are um, exchanging currencies there in the temple. Now, exchanging currencies in the temple, major no-no. Selling sacrificial animals in the temple, major no-no. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, and specifically where these money changers were, it was in the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles who are traveling from all over the Roman Empire, are coming into Jerusalem, and they want to worship God, but they can't because the one place they're allowed to go in the temple is filled with all these animals and the noise and the fur and probably the defecation and all these things, and then the the, the jingle jangle of coins. And not only that, but the money, the, um, the money changing that was going on was oftentimes dishonest, at least as, as I understand it. So people would come in from out of town. Oh, sorry, sir, your your drachma is no good here. Your denarius is no good here. You need a temple coin. So here, uh, we'll, we'll you know here's the exchange rate, and and they they didn't uh, they didn't give them a fair deal. So Gentiles were getting cheated. They were getting prohibited from worship, uh, practically prohibited from worship. And Jesus goes in and clears house. Now. Do you know, this is, I didn't realize this until I studied this passage a little bit more. Do you know the sect of Judaism that was basically running the show there in the temple with all the money changers? It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't the, the Essenes or the uh, Zealots. No, it was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones behind all of that money changing and um, and uh, brouhaha and what have you. It was the Sadducees. So 
This just happened a couple days prior to this encounter. And guess who Jesus is about to clash with? Jesus is about to clash, no surprise, with the Sadducees. So it kind of makes sense. Jesus is going in. He's upsetting their financial interests. And now he is going to clash with them. And they're going to attempt to... Um, to debunk him, to discredit him, but they're going to do it in a way that is totally unlike the Pharisees and the scribes that we've seen heretofore. Okay, let's see what happens. Um, before we get into this passage, here are a few key questions that I want you to think about as we go. Okay, question one. How does Jesus respond to skeptics who did not believe scripture. Now, right now you might be saying, whoa, 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 Joel, you just said this is with the Sadducees, this encounter. The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism. Judaism kind of by definition believes the Torah, the scripture. What are you talking about? Yes. Okay, listen. They do believe in the Torah, but as we're going to see, their view of the other books of scripture is highly deficient. In fact, this isn't totally clear, but it's very likely they actually held to a sort of canon within the canon. They had a book, uh, they, they had books that they favored, and it might even be that they had books that they denied. We're going to see that as we go. But um, it is actually right to consider the Sadducees as kind of a first century sort of form of uh, skeptic who did not believe all of Scripture. Question two then, how did Jesus handle the claim that scripture's claims are absurd. That is the challenge he's going he's gonna to face. And then question three, what objections today, because we always want to keep things practical, very relevant, and up to the moment, what objections today are similar to the Sadducees' objections, and how should we, as followers of Jesus, respond? So again, the goal here is to allow us all to walk away from scripture with principles that we can put in place. Look, am I am I reducing scripture to merely an apologetic manual? No, absolutely not. But we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And just because there's a heart connection here doesn't mean there shouldn't be a head connection. And I really firmly believe that God, 2 Peter 1.3 says we have all things that we need pertaining to life and godliness. God gives us everything we need, and I really do believe that Scripture is not only clear, but is sufficient for equipping the man of God for uh, for every good work, as it says in 2, Tim, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So what does that mean? It means that we want to read this passage, and we want to draw our principles, and we want to let the Master himself instruct our apologetic. We want to learn from Jesus himself. Okay. We move now into the first part of this true story, the setup. We find this in verse 23. So again, follow along if you're reading in your Bible. Otherwise, I will have the text up on the screen. On that day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and asked him, dot, 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 ellipses. We're going to find ask him in just a second. This is just verse 23. So who were these Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were members of wealthy, priestly, elite families who were unfriendly, snobbish. These people wielded political power, and their interests were very much tied to the interests of the Roman 
emperor and the Roman um, uh, power structures. So unlike the Pharisees who were who were uh, successful, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which of course is very much reflected in their um, approach to, to theology, uh, you know, sort of um, a businessman who sold their businesses and then lived off the proceeds. The Sadducees were born elite. They lived elite and they intended to stay elite. These, this is the old money. This is the, the, uh, the priestly class. This is sort of, if you go back 50, 60, 70 years in the United States, these would be the wasps. They sent all their, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That's, that's a definition of, of, uh, you know, like think about like the Bush family, you know, the, or the Rockefellers, you know, these people who historically possessed, uh, power and, and, uh, they were captains of industry. Okay. They played the same kind of role in the United States that the Sadducees played in the first century second temple Judaism. Only they're not captains of industry. They're captains of a uh, sort of religion and politics. So the Sadducees, were um, very, very elite. And when Jesus went into the temple and cleared the temple, he was disrupting their eliteness. He was uh, sticking his thumb right in their eye, essentially. Now, Jesus knows how to pick a fight better than better than anyone I've ever heard of because he does it graciously. He does it lovingly. He does it in a, a godly and pious way, but he's picking a fight. And so with the Sadducees, what does he do? His disciples don't wash their hands. Okay, that's all it takes to incite a, or, or Jesus goes up to a, uh, a man with a withered hand and heals it on the Sabbath. Okay, for the Sadducees, who, if you were here last week or last session, we talked about how the Sadducees were Bible plus unbelievers. They believed in the Bible plus extra teaching, text, or tradition. The Sadducees, we're going we're gonna to give them a different label as we go. But Jesus knew how to pick a fight with the Pharisee, and he knew how to pick a fight with the Sadducees, because the Sadducees only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as I alluded to earlier. Or at the very least, they held the Torah, what we now sometimes call the Pentateuch, um, just different words for the same thing. They held the Torah to be higher than the other portions of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The Tanakh stands for Torah. Uh, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, the, the the Torah, the prophets, which is the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim means the writings. And then that sort of forms an ac acronym that spells out Tanakh. So the, the Sadducees had a deficient view of Scripture. Um, they knew that Jesus was actually more in line with the Pharisees on this because Jesus held to, of course, all of Scripture, Genesis through Malachi at this point. That was the, the entirety of Scripture. And because they only believed in the first five books, they also had some interesting things that they didn't believe in. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Nor, evidently, did they believe in the afterlife. Meaning, not only did they not believe that human beings would rise from the grave bodily, which was an Orthodox Jewish belief at that time, but they didn't even really believe that the soul persists after death. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for Jewish people to be believing, right? I mean, that, that doesn't seem very Jewish. And how were these people considered within Orthodoxy? Well, the lines were drawn 
a little differently back then. You know, rabbinical Judaism, as we have it today, was really developed after the fall of Jerusalem by the remnants of the Pharisaical sect, the Pharisees. So the Sadducee, uh, Sadduceical ideas, they really died out in AD 70, which is why so many of their beliefs seem very counterintuitive to us. They seem not only unbiblical, but downright un-Jewish. But that's because the Judaism that we're familiar with today, if to the extent that we are familiar with Judaism, does not come from the Sadducees. So their, their ideas truly are no longer... Um, no longer a part of what we might consider uh, mainstream Orthodox Judaism today. And they're certainly not Christian beliefs. But the Sadducees approached Jesus here to challenge his theology with their unbiblical views, their uh, what I'm calling heterodox views, um, which means different than Orthodox, non-Orthodox views. And so here's their attack that they levy against Jesus. We find this in verses 24 through 28. Look at the text. Teacher, Moses said, if someone dies without having children, his brother is to marry his wife and father descendants for his brother. Now, pause right there. They're quoting from the Torah. Remember, they believe in the Torah, and they they think that there are problems with the other writings and the the prophets. So they're going to pose a hypothetical situation here. And what they're hoping to do is they're hoping to show that if you hold to the Torah and the prophets, then you end up with an inconsistency. You end up with incoherence and contradiction. In other words, then you really ought to just hold to the Torah. But what they're trying to do here is they're trying to debunk this idea of afterlife, the persistence of the soul after death, and ultimately resurrection. So here's what they say. They, they continue. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first died after getting married. And because he did not have descendants, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third up to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the, rex, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her as the wife. And they think now this is game, set, match. They've got Jesus. Boom. They've now shown and it, what they believe is an inconsistency if you take the whole of the Old Testament canon altogether as a whole, as a cohesive unit. Now, why did they have such a problem with this? Why? What? What did they think they had accomplished by uh, by doing this? Okay. Now, first of all, what are they really getting at? Like, what are they attacking? And and what scriptures teach something that they didn't believe that they wanted to attack? Well, there are a number of scriptures in the Old Testament that allude to or directly teach a resurrection. Which you know, a resurrection. If you're being raised from the dead, that assumes that you go somewhere when you die, and then the biblical idea is your soul comes back and gets a new body or a resurrected body. Where does the Old Testament teach this? Well, um, it teaches it very clearly in Daniel chapter 12. In the very beginning of Daniel chapter 12, it says specifically, I'm paraphrasing here, that the dead will rise, those who sleep in the dust will rise, and some will go off to earn, uh, to eternal glory and others to eternal damnation and punishment. Okay, so 
the Sadducees not wanting to believe Daniel, not wanting to buy into the rest of the the um, Old Testament scriptures, are trying to debunk Jesus. Because look, if Jesus is teaching something false, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Jesus Jesus doesn't represent God. So the goal really is the same as the, the Pharisees have. They're trying to debunk Jesus and and to discredit his status as Messiah because this is a guy that, that's ruining their financial interests. So they've got a they've got a, a desire, they've got a vested interest in Jesus being debunked. He's challenging their elite status. But in doing so, they have to undercut his um, theological beliefs, his beliefs about the canon, the canon of Scripture. And so they're going after these prophetic passages which teach the resurrection, like in Daniel. So let's break down their argument. While the Sadducees loved the Torah, they did not recognize the authority, at least apparently, or canonicity of passages like, I already mentioned Daniel 12, verse 2, but Isaiah 26, 19, you can go look that up yourself, teaches the same thing. Now, their assumption is this. If the Spirit lives on after death, which is necessary for there to be a resurrection, because a resurrection is not like a recreation. And this is something that Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that um, when Jesus died, he was annihilated, and then he was basically recreated, and that was his resurrection. The problem there is there's no ontological continuity. If you die and you come out of, you're snuffed out of existence and come back, that's not a resurrection. That's a new creation. You see what I mean? That's not a resurrection. Resurrection is dying and you're, it's still you that comes back to life. So for there to be a resurrection, according to the biblical definition, the spirit must live on after death. But they think they found an inconsistency in that concept because they believed in the Torah and they know Jesus believes the Torah. But in the Torah, leveret marriage is commanded. Leveret comes from the word lever, which um, probably, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but it means brother-in-law. And that, that was the law that if a woman's husband died, her brother-in-law would marry her and she would, um, sh- uh, through him, he would produce offspring to keep the, the, the dead brother's line going, uh, family line going. That was very important under the old covenant. But if the spirit lives on after death, then death hasn't really occurred, according to them, and the spouses are still technically married to each other. And at the very least, even if there's somehow no marriage in that um, shadowy death state, you know, in the grave, in Sheol, remember, they didn't have the concept of heaven yet. Like when you, you died go, and go to heaven, it was, you would die and you would go to Sheol or what the Greeks called Hades. It's the same concept, same place. And by the way, I don't think it's just a concept. It's true. That's what would happen under the Old Testament, uh, Old Covenant. But then in the resurrection, you have this problem because here's a woman who had seven different husbands, all brothers. And if in the resurrection, she's got to be married to all these brothers, then you're looking at a really bad situation. You're looking at a situation of polyandry, which is multiple husbands or incest. I mean, really both because there's a woman married to all these different brothers. That's gross. Now, the funny thing is, in the Old Covenant, um, polygamy was allowable where a man could potentially have more than one wife. It's obviously not God's ideal. And actually, Jesus, in ushering in the New Covenant, did away with that. But polygamy or polygamy 
was allowable. Polyandry, multiple husbands, was not. There's no provision for that. In fact, it, 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 it was absurd. The idea that a woman would have multiple husbands, is, is it wasn't even part of their worldview in any way, shape, or form. It, it would have sounded absurd, as absurd as it really should sound to us today. I say should because, man, nowadays almost anything goes out there. But um, therefore, if there is a resurrection and leveret marriage is a thing and, and leveret marriage is indisputable, then what you have is, according to them, the situation of polyandry or incest, rendering it totally unacceptable, totally absurd when you try to combine belief in the resurrection with belief in the Torah. Since the soul didn't persist after death, since there was no afterlife, according to them, the resurrection is therefore debunked. Jesus is going around teaching uh, about the resurrection. He even called himself the resurrection um, when he, right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, which happened chronologically before this. And therefore, Jesus is a false teacher, and Jesus is debunked as well. And how dare he go around overturning our tables and our money changers and, and our animals and whipping us? Okay, so here's the apologetic challenge. The challenge is, the claim is being made, we should forget about the Bible's absurd teachings, but we should keep the good ones. Keep the good, get rid of the bad. We do this with all kinds of books, movies, things like that. I hope that even as I teach this class, that you're testing everything that I say against Scripture. I hope you're not just you know, taking it in and thinking like somehow Joel must be infallible. I know you're not thinking that. I know you're testing it against Scripture. Eat the meat and spit out the bones, as they say. But the, the apologetic challenge here is that we can do that with Holy Scripture. Eat the meat and spit out the bones as if there's any bones, as if there's anything in Scripture that's not good for us. Well, that's the apologetic challenge that we have to now address. So let, let's just do a real quick recap here of our three apologetic steps. This is the three-step um, apologetic method of presuppositional apologetics as I teach it. Step one, you do an internal critique or a reductio ad absurdum of the biblical position. You remember this. This is where you're, you're reducing the unbelieving position to absurdity by showing that its presuppositions and its conclusions don't match up. The beliefs don't line up. They contradict each other. Step two, you, you allow the unbeliever, you invite him to step into your worldview and analyze it from the inside to do an internal critique of the biblical position and then and show why it's true. Step three, you're going to call the unbeliever to repentance or make an evangelistic appeal. And you may have noticed I'm slightly tweaking how I talk about step three. In the past, I've always talked about it as an apologetic or a um, evangelistic appeal. I'm actually tweaking that based on how I see Jesus do it. Jesus doesn't always directly make an, an evangelistic appeal. In fact, very rarely will he do that where he says, you know, hey, repent, believe the gospel. Instead, he rebukes his opponent sharply. And it's it's uh, the implicit command is stop teaching heresy, and there's a command to the onlookers, no longer follow these people. Uh, They're false teachers. So you're calling them to repentance. But these steps aren't always used in the quote-unquote correct order. In fact, uh, Jesus uses them out of order all the time, and uh, I'm going to go with the position that Jesus's use is the correct one, and my way is incorrect. If there is a correct, it's not mine, it's his. But Jesus uses them he uses the three steps, but he uses them in different orders every time. And we're going to see a new order that he uses them in, in this very story. 
So how? Do, so what is Jesus doing here? Um, Jesus answered them, answered and said to them. So we're reading right along in our text. This is Matthew twenty-two. He said, "You are mistaken because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God." Now this is Jesus going straight to step three: the rebuke, the call to repentance, the evangelistic appeal. Hey, repent because you're teaching something false. Despite their religiosity, what Jesus shows is that they don't know God. They don't know God's word. See, they had been attempting to hit Jesus with a spiritually based gotcha question. But the fact that they were trying to do that with Jesus by pitting the Torah against the, the, the prophetic writings that only showed that they didn't understand scripture. It showed that they were biblically, scripturally illiterate. So Jesus cuts right to the chase. He goes right to what I call step three and says they're wrong. They don't understand God's power. They haven't been studying their Bibles very well. Now, the fact that Jesus calls them out for not knowing God's power is interesting because in Romans 1, it says that everyone knows, everyone has clearly seen God's eternal power and divine nature. So God's eternal power is on display, but these Sadducees are not getting it. Why are they not getting it? Well, according to Romans 1, the reason why you don't get it is because you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, either consciously or subconsciously, you are denying what you know to be true in order to keep on sinning, in order to commit unrighteousness. So the very fact that Jesus has just gone into the temple and flipped over all their money-changing tables, and now they're coming after him, shows that they have a vested interest in pursuing their unrighteousness here. they got to keep suppressing the truth. The problem is their truth suppression is now on full display. Rather than debunking Jesus, they're only going to end up debunking themselves. So Jesus is is, uh, forecasting his punch here. He's going to hit them with the true view of the power of God, and he's going to hit them, he's going to demolish their faulty view of scriptures, of the scriptures. He's actually um, he's actually giving away his other two steps here. When he says you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, those that those are the next two steps in his apologetic that he's going to go to. You'll see. Jesus continues. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. What is Jesus doing here? He's not appealing to their understanding now. He's teaching them the truth. He's presenting the true view, the biblical view, the scriptural view, the view that if they actually believed the word of God, understood it, and understand understood God's power, this is what they would believe, but this is the true and biblical position. So Jesus is going here to step two. He's presenting the biblical scriptural worldview and showing that there is no inconsistency. Look what he says. He says, look, in the resurrection, he essentially your objection is only an inconsistency with scripture if Scripture actually teaches what you say that it teaches. But guess what? It doesn't. See, they didn't understand the power of God. The uh, the ESV Study Bible has, I use it all the time. Highly recommend it, by the way. It has a note on this verse. And it says they didn't, they didn't understand 
that God is able to, quote, create a much more wonderful world than anyone can now imagine, end quote. See, this is a world in which marriage is no longer necessary. Now, before you think that I'm saying that marriage is some kind of horrible curse where, you know, uh, a wonderful world would not have marriage, that's not what I'm saying at all. What G- and that's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, what we learn from the whole of Scripture, like you go to Ephesians chapter 5, marriage itself is a metaphor. Marriage is a symbol of Christ's relationship to the church. In the resurrection, The power of God is so great, so strong, that he is going to create and and establish and, um, and usher in a type of being, a mode of being, in which the people of God, symbolized as a bride, and the the Messiah, the um the Son of God, Jesus, who is who is uh the, the head of the church and the church is his body are going to um, come together and dwell together in a way that is so magnificent and glorious that a wedding is a is is a proper metaphor for it but when your whole universe and your whole existence is a great big cosmic marriage you don't need individual marriages because individual marriage is a type of and now in the eternal state, you'll have the anti-type. You can think of it in terms of marriage is uh, a symbol. The cosmic eternal state is what is what is being symbolized. Marriage is the shadow. I don't want to use that term too strongly because shadows I usually use for the Old, Old Testament uh, uh, symbols. But marriage is the shadow and... Um, the resurrected state relationship between Christ and the church is the thing itself. It, the, the shadow of which was being you know, cast into our world and that's marriage. You understand what I'm saying? So the, the Sadducees rather didn't understand the power of God to create this kind of world. In Old Testament passages, the ones that do express, explicitly, expressly teach the resurrection the ones that the Sadducees were rejecting, there is definitely a lot of um, a, a strong picture of a of a glory and a, a magnificent state, but there is no mention of marriage in the eternal state. So they were just inserting their own idea into the biblical worldview as if it was part of the biblical worldview, but their objection was actually baseless because those passages that teach resurrection don't teach marriage in the resurrection. And again, the idea of the resurrected state is more fully fleshed out in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, there's nothing in there about marriage between men and women in the resurrected state. So there was no need for them to to think that. Um, their objection was therefore arbitrary. It was actually unbiblical. And essentially what they were doing was they were they were strawmanning the biblical position. And so Jesus is is showing them that, and he's debunking their attempt to to debunk, uh, to to de- to debunk him and his role as the Messiah. Now I have Psalm 49, 15 mentioned there on the, uh, on the screen. What does that say? It says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. 
for he will receive me. So again, this is another one of those passages in the the writings, the Psalms, that um, that talk about the eternal state, but it doesn't say anything about marriage. It says instead about being received by God, about going to God, about um, you know the resurrected state is about primarily our our relationship to God, not about our earthly merit marital relationships. So. In the true scriptural worldview, the inconsistency disappears. But now look what Jesus does. Now he brings it home. And in verse 31 and 32, he lets them, he really lets them have it. This is where he is going to perform a reductio ad absurdum. He's going to internally critique and reduce to absurdity the the Sadducees' view. Here's what he says. Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, who said, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So that's, again, that's verses 31 and 32. Now, what Jesus does here is so brilliant. He appeals to a passage from the Torah. Exodus 3, 6. This is a passage that they affirmed. Exodus is squarely right there in the Torah, second book of the Torah. So they had to affirm this. Therefore, they should have believed in the afterlife. Why? Why should they have believed that? Because in that verse, Exodus 3, 6, that Jesus appeals to, he showed them, uh, uh, Yahweh rather, the Lord, is referring to his relationship to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I I am their God. Well, if he is their God, he has that relationship to them currently. That must mean that they are still alive. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Does Jesus think that Abraham is somewhere walking around on the earth, you know, uh, mysteriously, like the Mormons believe that the apostle John is still roaming the earth to this day? They actually do believe that. It's crazy. I know if if you're Mormon, I'm not calling you a crazy person. I'm saying that is an unbiblical belief and I'll be happy to talk with you about it. You never know who's going to watch this, but, but no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that Abraham his soul, his spirit is persisting. He is alive in the afterlife. He is currently in Sheol. He is in the the realm known to the Greeks as Hades and known to the Israelites as Sheol, the grave. But he's still just as alive as he was here on earth. He's just not bodily alive. He's just not physically alive. And because of that, God can still refer to him in the present tense. So what does this mean? Their number one argument against the resurrection has now been demolished. Their argument was was that the soul cannot persist. If the soul persists after death, it leads to all kinds of crazy complications with leveret marriage. That argument is now debunked. They have no objection to the resurrection. Um, First of all, they didn't understand what, the resurrection was all about. Second of all, their own Torah teaches the persistence of the soul. So their position has now been reduced to absurdity. Their accusation against Jesus is null and void. And guess what? 
It turns out Jesus had every right to make that whip and flip their tables. You see? His author- the, by appealing to the Torah, they've actually affirmed the, um, the messiahship of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. In, uh, in modern parlance, we would say they played themselves. Congratulations, Sadducees. You played yourself. Okay, now, what are the Sadducees? Last time we talked about Scripture minus believers, meaning believers who hold to um, less than a full picture of what the Bible teaches and need to be corrected by being taught the full biblical picture. We also looked at Scripture plus unbelievers, unbelievers who hold to a um, who hold to the whole canon but have extra biblical, unbiblical teaching, text, or tradition. But the Sadducees don't really fit into either one of those categories. They're scripture minus because they don't have the full picture of scripture, but they are unbelievers. They do not trust in Jesus. So so what is a scripture minus unbeliever? This would be a non-Christian who picks and chooses from the Bible in order to argue against Christianity or pit scripture against scripture without taking it all in context as a whole. As an example, this would be a Protestant liberal, um, someone who goes by the name of Protestant, but really practices another religion. They don't believe in the uh, inerrancy of scripture. They don't believe in the virgin birth, the uh, sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ, or just modern day leftists who want to take parts of scripture for themselves um, but oftentimes we'll pit scripture against scripture. We're going to look at a more in-depth example here, but uh, that that icon there, if you can see that, uh, what is that? That was the closest I could find to a, a female priest or a female pastor. Um, why did I include that? Is that? Am I saying that everyone who claims to be a pastor and is female is not a Christian? No, but I'm associating... Christian or Protestant liberalism with one of their long-held doctrines, which is that being an elder, being a pastor is not limited to men only, which is what the Bible teaches. So, um, so again, not throwing all people, not throwing all egalitarians under the bus here by any means or throwing them out of the kingdom. Instead, rather, um, this is a, this woman preacher here icon is a symbol of Protestant liberals. So, just qualifying what I'm saying, covering my tracks a little bit, making sure nobody gets confused by what I'm saying. Um, so what is our goal then with Scripture minus unbelievers? Well, we need to show how the Bible only makes sense as a whole, and that if you divide it up, you're being inconsistent and arbitrary. And that leads to all kinds of problems. If you try to pit Scripture against Scripture, or you try to pick and choose Scriptures from the Bible, you're going to end up with a world of problems, a world of theological problems, a world of logical problems, and your argument is ultimately going to collapse upon itself. Okay, now, what are three similar objections to the ones that the Sadducees raised? What are three similar objections that we may face today? Okay, the first one is this, and I've gotten this, you've probably gotten the same thing. The Bible teaches things that are clearly absurd. Look, in the Bible, it talks about talking donkeys. It talks about talking snakes. 
It talks about water turning into wine. It talks about people crossing a sea and there's just dry land there. It talks about the sun standing still. We now know that the sun doesn't move across the sky. The earth rotates. So there's no way that that could have happened. Okay, the Bible teaches these things that are totally absurd. This is how the argument goes. Okay, how do we refute this argument like Jesus? Now, I'm not going to do my steps in the same order Jesus did them. Um, hopefully, it's okay if I take some liberties here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do them in step one, step two, step three, the way I taught it to you earlier in this course. Okay, step one. Without the God of the Bible, you have no objective measure of logic or absurdity. So if you are trying to reject God, if you're trying to reject Christianity, which, you know, oftentimes this argument would be, um, would be taught, would be proffered by atheists who don't want to believe in God. Well, without the God of the Bible, you have no objective measure of logic. Why? Because God and his logical nature um, is, according to the biblical worldview, which is true, the objective immaterial, universal, knowable standard for logic, for the laws of thought, what we call the laws of logic. Without God, if you take God out of the picture, hypothetically, what is logic? Do we live in a material world? Is logic made of matter? Is, is logic made of energy? Matter and energy are always changing. Are the laws of logic always changing? And if so, how do you use them as a measure to, to measure the Bible by. Maybe the laws of logic, if they're made of matter, maybe they've just changed since the Bible was written. Maybe the Bible used to be logical and, and maybe now it's not, but maybe it will be in the future. But how do you even know? And anyway, doesn't that kind of fall apart? Because how can a law be made out of matter? A law by definition is a proposition. A law by definition is a concept. It's a conceptual entity. It's an immaterial entity. If you live in a world, a material world, that is only, that all, all that it consists of is matter and energy, you don't get laws in a universe like that. So you have no measure of logic or absurdity. Now, step two, let's go into the biblical worldview. Everything taught in the Bible makes perfect sense within the biblical worldview when you view all of Scripture as a whole. So, yes, the Bible teaches that Jesus turned water into wine. The Bible also teaches that Jesus is God incarnate. Is it a problem for, is there any inconsistency for God, for the God-man to be able to turn water into wine? Is there anything inconsistent about that? No, of course not. Absolutely not. And look, when you watch, when you watch the Avengers, which by the way, I am so done with Marvel after I found out about what they're doing with these new series, uh, teaching for another time, but I do love me some Avengers movies. But like, does anybody watch the Avengers and go, ah, bah, bah, uh, uh, Captain America could never stop that car with his bare hands. No man, no mortal man can do that. It's like, no, Captain America, he's got super strength. He took the super soldier serum, man. He's a super soldier. Super soldier can stop a car with his bare hands. Perfectly consistent within that universe. Well, when you read the Bible, the same Jesus who turned water into wine is the God-man. He can do that. It's not inconsistent. There's no problem there. Can God make the sun stand still in the sky? Um, well, yeah, of course. Does that mean that he stopped the rotation of the earth? 
if that's what it, if that's what it took, sure, absolutely. Can God do that without everybody flying off the face of the earth because of inertia? Yeah, he's God. Not a problem. Like, why would that be a problem? Here, here's, here's something you may not have known. Um, inertia was his idea in the first place. Like, inertia didn't just happen. God decided to create inertia. God can cancel or suspend inertia anytime he wants. There is zero problem with that at all. So God can make a day long. Uh, he's God. That's perfectly fine. God can make a donkey talk. God can make a snake talk. God can even raise a man from the dead. And that is exactly what he did. There is no inconsistency there. Now, the same God, this is step three, the same God of the Bible calls your denial of him sin and calls you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The same Bible that gives you a standard of logic versus absurdity is the same Bible that makes sense of the objection and solves it and also calls you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on the cross for sinners like you, for your sin of denying him. And he is calling you today to repent and trust in him because he conquered death for sinners like you and me. Oh, by the way, you might see in the back of this uh, picture, if you're if you're watching the video right now, there's a donkey. That's just my little homage to uh, Balaam's talking donkey. I always I've I've always loved that story ever since I was a little kid, and um, I also loved it when uh, the movie Shrek ripped it off and turned the talking donkey into a uh, fairy tale character. But I don't hold them hold it against them. They're they're unbelievers. Okay, now um, next article. Next objection, rather. Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Okay, how is this similar here? Well, you're taking the teachings of Jesus that you like, you're selecting those, you're selecting the gospel teachings, and you're saying those are good, but eh, these claims about him being God, not down with that. Daniel 7, Revelation, pretty much all the epistles of Paul. No, not going to go with that. So I'll take the good teachings, but not going to take the uh, the whole thing about him being God. Okay, how do we refute this like Jesus? I'm going to move through these a little quicker now, now that we've established the three-step method. Step one, a large part of Jesus's teachings centered on two ideas. One, that the whole Bible is from God and you can't break it up. Scripture cannot be broken. And two, that he himself is God. If you believe Jesus is a good teacher, why don't you believe and obey him? It's inconsistent. If you believe Jesus is a good teacher, you have to believe what he said about the whole Bible, and you have to believe that he is God. You're being inconsistent. Step two, the whole Bible gives the criteria of goodness. You want Jesus to be a good teacher? You need the Bible for that. The whole Bible. Because the Bible is not given to us piecemeal. It's given to us in an, uh, it's it's God's inscripturated word, but it's also given to us in a narrative. One part does not make sense without another part. It's a cohesive whole. So if you like the parts that talk about goodness and establish goodness, you, that goodness is rooted in the nature of God. Jesus himself, the good teacher who apparently this person making this objection really likes, he himself, Jesus himself said, no one is good but God. God is the standard. So, so 
In the biblical worldview, we have the criteria of goodness, which Jesus not only establishes, but also perfectly meets. Not just his teachings, but his miracles, his divinity, and his atoning death are inseparable doctrines. They are essential doctrines. And so within the biblical worldview, you have to take them all together. And there's no inconsistency there. Jesus is a good teacher, but he's also God. Step three, the same Bible that gives the standard for goodness and teaches that Jesus is good and is God also says that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you. So the same Bible teaches the gospel and commands you to repent and believe the gospel. Final uh, modern day objection. Why do you judge sinners when Jesus said, don't judge? Um, I could have put in, I, I could have put behind this graphic, I could have put a, like a rainbow flag or something. We, as I record this right now, we are in the middle of pride month. I'm um, noticed they don't even call it gay pride anymore. Now it's just pride. It's just, and, and, and this isn't like pride, like, Hey, like the kind of pride that I feel like when my, my boys are in wrestling and I, I see them, you know, do a really great takedown and I'm proud. I'm proud of my son. Like I'm grateful to God. No, this is, this is pride in what ultimately the Bible would call depravity and, and, and immorality. And we Christians around this time of year get a lot of flack for judging, you know, the, the Christian evangelist who goes to the pride parade with the bullhorn, with the microphone and says, homosexuality is immoral. It's an abomination. But the good news is that Jesus died for sinners like you repent, believe the gospel they're met all the time and not just then. I mean, it's, it's, it's year round. Anytime you condemn sin, we hear this, this phrase, you know, this, this uh, counter argument. Why do you judge sinners when Jesus said, don't judge? Now here's the thing that Jesus did say, don't judge more or less. He said, do not judge so that you will not be judged, but let's refute this like Jesus and, and, um, and see if this this uh, objection really holds up. Okay, step one. Mr. Unbeliever, Mr. Skeptic, you are trying to condemn hypocrisy. You're saying that the Christian is being hypocritical by judging sin while saying that they're following Jesus. They're saying one thing and they're doing another. You're That's called hypocrisy. And you are trying to condemn hypocrisy. But guess what? By condemning hypocrisy, you are judging sin. Now, the idea of judging sin um, comes from, it actually also comes from the biblical worldview, and we're going to see that in a minute. So, but the, the question that I want to ask you, Mr. Unbeliever, is this, which is it? Are hypocrisy and other sins, including homosexuality for, for an example, but there's any number of sins we could point to. It's not like it's just homosexuals who sin. I mean, Christians, non-Christians, we all sin. We are all under judgment apart from Jesus Christ. But are hypocrisy and other sins worthy of judgment? And that's why you're, you're judging it. Or is there nothing wrong with Christians judging sin hypocritically? Those are your two options. Is hypocrisy worthy of judgment, in which case it's right to judge sin, or... Is it not right to judge sin? And therefore, um, 
uh, Christians judging hypocritically and being hypocrites is not something you can actually condemn because it's not right to condemn sin. And by the way, let's just throw in a by what standard in there anyway. How do you even make that decision? How do you even make that call without God? You just have to be arbitrary. So I'm actually expecting some questions about that. If you have questions about that, um, the guys who are watching right now, who are taking this course live, you can write your question in the chat. If you're watching this on YouTube later, you can just drop it in the comments. Okay, now, step three. Uh, step two, rather. Jesus' actual teaching in Matthew 7, verse 1 and following is that we should not judge falsely or hypocritically, but we should judge with righteous judgment. That's in, in John 7, 24. John 7, 24. Uh, the Gospel of John. So what Jesus is saying in that Matthew passage is don't just judge someone without dealing with yourself first. Also, it's not the Christian's place to pass eternal judgment on somebody as if they're irredeemable. Um, instead, we can definitely call out sin, but we are to do it with righteous judgment, not without first examining our own hearts and our own lives so that we don't find ourselves guilty of the very thing that we're condemning in someone else. Um, that's called being a hypocrite. Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocrites. So step three, the same Bible that says, uh, the same Bible that tells us not to judge wrongly and to judge rightly also says that we will also, that we'll all be judged by Jesus and that only those who have been saved by him will be forgiven. So repent and believe the gospel and be saved. All right. So we're going to move now to questions. We went a little long on this one, but um, let's see if we do have some questions and I'm going to bring, um, I'm going to bring Nick and Kevin up onto the screen in just a second. But if you're just watching the teaching portion, thank you for watching. Drop any comments below and be sure to check us out. Um, you can get plenty more teachings at thethink.institute. And you can also find out there how to partner with us prayerfully and financially. Thanks for watching and um, God bless you. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think.